As I said tonight, we're kind of looking at a section of Scripture that spans two different narratives. We're kind of looking at a section of Scripture that spans the curse in verse, from verse 15 of chapter 3 onward to about halfway through the narrative of Cain and Abel. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange section of Scripture. I was going to just move on and just talk only about Cain and Abel and just move on with the storyline. Um, but as I thought about it more, this, this is, in some ways, again, it's, we're covering some of the same ground that we've already covered. But as we're here in Genesis 3, at the risk of belaboring the point, it's just, it is important, I think, to draw out explicitly what is happening here in this section of Scripture. And what is happening here in this section of Scripture is a change of relationship between mankind and God. Clearly. That's very obvious. There is a change of relationship between mankind and God when Adam falls in to sin. And so we're looking at kind of the transition, which isn't necessarily explicitly delineated in the Scripture in terms of an explicit chapter and verse. But what uh, we're trying to do is draw out, in contrast to the way things were before the fall, what is the nature of the new relationship that God has with mankind after the fall? So that's what we're doing tonight. Now briefly, and this is review, we need to have fresh in our minds what the terms of relationship between God and man were like before the fall. And we'll remember that we called this, theologians call this the covenant of works. That Adam had God's moral law written on his heart, and Adam also received a specific injunction not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we saw that by good and necessary consequence, if Adam had for instance, not eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but had, for example, murdered Eve, well, he still would have fallen. It's not like every, anything, anything goes except eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's moral law was operative in the garden. And so this threat of death upon the breach of God's law extended not only to the specific injunction not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but also extended to the breach of of any of God's laws. In other words, Adam was placed under a condition of perfect and perpetual obedience to God's law, and there was uh, death threatened upon the breach of it, and there was reward implied upon the keeping of it. We see that by reasoning backwards from the parallel that Paul draws between Adam and Christ in Romans chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that Jesus had work to do and he could actually finish it and complete it and attain life for all whom he represents. And so by implication, uh, Christ coming and doing what the first Adam failed to do, by implication, we see that the first Adam could have, in theory, kept the terms of this covenant. He was, in that sense, in a probationary period where he was under a condition of perfect and perpetual obedience with work to do, which he could have completed. He could have finished his probation and confirmed humanity in a state of blessedness. This is the covenant of works. That's the nature of the relationship that Adam was in with God before the fall. This is stuff we've already covered, so I'm not really trying to prove or argue or explain these points tonight. I'm just rehashing these points so that they're fresh in our mind. And so, though it was gracious for God to enter into such a relationship with Adam, in that God didn't have to enter into any kind of relationship with Adam, God could have, in theory, just remained aloof and transcendent from Adam and not bothered to reveal himself to Adam any more than creation itself would be a testimony to who God is and that there is a creator and so on and so forth. God did not owe Adam any relationship more than that. And so, though this covenant was gracious... It was predicated upon Adam's perfect and perpetual obedience. 
And because of that, theologians have called it the covenant of works. Covenant of works does not, again, mean that there was no grace involved. The covenant itself was graciously given to Adam, but it was predicated upon Adam's works. And so it was called the covenant of works. So what changed in terms of mankind's relationship to God after the fall? Well, what changed is that the covenant of works was broken. Adam was not only placed under a condition of perfect and perpetual obedience, in a probation, um, under probation, with threat of punishment or offer of reward for himself only, but Adam was placed in this arrangement as a representative. And so when Adam sinned, he broke the covenant of works and he broke the covenant of works for all whom he represented, namely the whole human race. And so what that means is that since the fall, every person who is born is born into the broken covenant of works. Now, if the terms of the covenant of works are that perfect and perpetual obedience must be offered unto God in order to attain a reward of life, well then, if you're in a broken covenant of works, can you, by your best efforts, attain the reward of life? No, you cannot. Because perfect and perpetual obedience is the condition. And so Adam, having already sinned, we cannot offer perfect obedience. We cannot offer perpetual obedience. Even if you or I could stop sinning tonight and never sin again, and never sin again, that would not be perfect and perpetual obedience to God. And so every person born into this world after the fall is born into the broken covenant of works and has no hope of attaining reward from God on the basis of their obedience. No hope of attaining eternal life on the basis of their obedience. So that's one thing that changed in terms of mankind's relationship with God. But the Bible is not, doesn't just simply tell us, well, everything, uh, there was so much potential and so much possibility up until Genesis 3, but everything from Genesis 3 till Revelation 22 is just bad news. Everybody's in a broken covenant of works. There's no hope whatsoever. No one can be in right relationship with God. No one can have eternal life, so on and so forth. So the question then that arises is, if the covenant of works was broken in Adam, such that it cannot be repaired, it's not something that you can take into the mechanic shop and have fixed. It's not something that you can go buy some duct tape and mend. It's not something that you can get a needle and some thread and patch. The covenant of works is irreparably broken. So the question becomes then, on what basis can mankind be in right relationship to God? And on what basis can mankind attain eternal life? If not through the covenant of works. And so what I want to stress tonight is this idea. If mankind is to continue to live after the fall... If, if they are to inherit eternal life, if they are to be reconciled to God, it must be by God's grace. Strict justice. Strict justice without any mercy or grace intermingled. Strict justice would send all and sundry straight to hell. Straight to hell. Tonight. If God mingled no mercy and no grace with His justice, and gave everybody strictly what they deserve, everybody would go to hell. If God had not mingled mercy then and grace in with His justice in the garden, Adam and Eve would have went straight to hell. So if even the prolonging of their life, their earthly life, was grace. It doesn't necessarily mean that Adam and, A Adam and Eve were redeemed, that they were to inherit eternal life, necessarily, the fact that their earthly life was prolonged. But even just that prolongment 
of their, of their temporal life is grace. We have to see that. God extended grace in even allowing them to live. God extended them grace in allowing them to bear children. God extended grace in allowing Cain to live and Abel to live. And eventually Seth and the others to live. God extended grace to the human race in even allowing us to have a temporal life. God expelling Adam and Eve from the garden so that they would not eat from the tree of life was also grace. Was also grace. We read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22, Behold, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, from the rest of the Bible, do we think that God is intrinsically opposed to man living forever? No. No. Whoever believes in the Son of God shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. So God is not opposed, in principle, to mankind living forever. Is God opposed, in principle, to mankind eating from the tree of life? No. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. Paul is, or pardon me, Paul. John is writing to the church at Ephesus uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so the speaker is Jesus. And he says to the church in Ephesus, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So he's writing to the Ephesian church. And Jesus is saying to the Ephesian church, listen, if you persevere, if you press through, you're going to eat from the tree of life. Or over at the end of Revelation in chapter 22. Then, beginning at verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, etc., etc. So God, in expelling Adam and Eve from the garden, did not expel them because He was opposed in principle to Adam and Eve living forever, nor was He opposed in principle to mankind eating from the tree of life. We see later in Scripture that both are offered unto mankind. But uh, it seems that what the function of the tree of life is, is to confirm a person in the state in which they are in forever. As we look at, um, as, as theologians have looked at this section, it seems that what the function of the tree of life in the garden was, was that if Adam had eaten from it in a fallen state, he would live forever in a fallen state. Right? And this is why we can eat of the tree of life in heaven, in a perfected state, because we'll be in a glorified state. And it's good and right for us to live forever in a glorified state. And so it seems that that's the function of the tree of life. That it was a, it was a sacramental thing, as it were. That it was an outward sign of an inward reality. And it was also something that um, in the eating, God would work through it. The same way that God nourishes us through the Lord's table. Um, so the Lord would actually do something through the eating of the tree of life. And so God, not wanting Adam and Eve to live forever in their fallen state, expels them from the garden. So again, this is grace, so that they might not eat and live forever in that state. Then God clothes them. We see in chapter 3 and verse 21, that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed, clothed them. And certainly we do see, looking back, we can see a beautiful picture of how uh, our own attempts to clothe ourselves, as it were, are inadequate and that God, in, 
Himself must clothe us if we are to be adequately clothed. That all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, but receiving the imputed righteousness of Christ is the clothing that we really need, and only God can give us that. Certainly we can see that looking back, right? Um, But at a very basic level, God is providing a basic material necessity for Adam and Eve. They now needed clothes. As we talked about last week, um, there's a symbolism of needing to be clothed. In other words, now we can no longer, it's not appropriate for us to be fully seen or fully known, as it were, in the sense that there actually is something now inadequate about us, and we do actually now have something to hide. And so the necessity of clothing um, relates to that in a symbolic way. But also, the reality is that after the fall, the gift of sexuality would be perverted. That um, after the fall, sinful nature would abuse the good gift of sexuality. And so there's a practical need to cover up in, in terms of uh, protecting against the sinful abuses of fallen sexuality. And so in any case, God is meeting basic nece- material necessities of Adam and Eve by clothing them. So again, grace. So we see Adam, we see God dealing graciously with Adam and Eve. This doesn't necessarily mean beyond a shadow of a doubt that Adam and Eve were saved from their sin and that we'll see them in heaven. But what, what I'm, all I'm trying to point out is that God does deal graciously with Adam and Eve. If God did not mix grace with justice, He would have just sent them straight to hell. And that wouldn't, He wouldn't have done them any wrong. He wouldn't have done them anything unfair by sending them straight to hell. But what you see is that God deals graciously with them. And God deals graciously with all men. All men without exception. All men without exception. Every single person that walks the face of the earth, God deals graciously with them. You will not find somebody in this world living, breathing, walking around in whatever circumstance who is not a recipient of grace from God's hand. Strict justice with no grace would send us straight to hell. And so if somebody, every day that somebody spends not in hell, even the vilest unbeliever, every day that somebody spends not in hell is a byproduct of God's grace toward that person. There is a common grace that God shows to mankind after the fall that extends to all men. He sends the sun and the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, Jesus tells us, um, that He does not send us straight to hell. Uh, We see various ways in which God provides, takes care of, um, gives good things to all people without exception. There's a common grace at work in this world. And so, even the unbeliever's relationship to God is not predicated upon strict justice after the fall, that there is some grace intermingled. There's a sentence of strict justice hanging over their heads that should they die in an unrepentant state without trusting their souls to Christ, they will die and go to hell and receive strict justice there forever. But God has dealt graciously with the whole human race since the fall. And that's just important to note. But what we see here in this section of Scripture is also that God introduces saving grace into the world. And we know from the rest of Scripture and just from observation that God does not save every man, woman, boy and girl who walks the face of the earth. And so, um, in that sense, this is not for all mankind the way that common grace is, but this saving grace is offered to all mankind. And it's offered to all mankind uh, in, first in promissory form throughout the Old Testament, and then now looking back on what, how God has fulfilled those promises in the New Testament. Let me uh, explain this and unfold this a little bit more. Uh, as we continue. God promises a rescuer, as it were, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. 
God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We see here that there will be somebody who will come and deal a death blow to the serpent. And he will, do, he will deal a death blow to the serpent at some cost to himself. That his heel will be struck. Right? And so we have this expectation that somebody is going to come and do battle with the serpent, as it were. And that he will come out victorious. This is a promise of a rescuer. The serpent at this juncture of biblical revelation represents the enemies of mankind. The enemy of mankind, pardon me. That he is the tempter. He is the one who uh, seduced Eve to sin and um, was the occasion of their own responsible choice to sin. And so the promise here implies more than simply that the serpent will be dealt a death blow. The promise here also implies that the enemy of mankind will be overthrown. And so loaded into here is is an implication that all of the negative things that are going to happen because of the fall will be undone. That, that sin has plunged mankind into a miserable state, but that a rescuer will come who will undo what has been done and who will, who will crush the enemy of God's people and implicitly bring deliverance. That's what we think of when we think of being rescued from our enemies. We think of deliverance. Imagine a city that's under siege and they have no food or no water and everybody's getting weak and everybody's getting frail and then a rescuer comes and defeats the enemy. When we envision a story like that, we don't envision a rescuer merely coming and defeating the enemy and be like, now go find your own food. Go find your own water. Right? When we think about someone coming to the rescue and defeating our enemies, we, we envision a full rescue. Right? Not, only, not only defeating the enemies, but opening up the dams that have cut off water from the city. Right? And replenishing the storehouses of the city with food. Right? And so, in the same way, this promise that a rescuer will come to crush the serpent's head implies, though not explicitly, a full rescue. Which implies that there will be a return to the divine human intimacy that was experienced in the garden. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Think about this. How else would God have... Pardon me. How else would Adam have known what it sounded like when the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day in chapter 3 and verse 8. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. How would they know what that sounded like unless they had heard the Lord God walk in the garden before in the cool of the day? This was the kind of relationship of intimacy with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the garden. So we see here the promise of a rescuer the expulsion from the garden, but when we, when we correspond the expulsion from the garden with the promise of a rescuer, there's a foreshadowing here that this expulsion from the garden isn't to be permanent. That the, when the rescuer comes and crushes the serpent's head, there will be a restoration of the divine human intimacy that was enjoyed before the fall. If not the snake wins. Right? If, the, if the snake's head is crushed, but Adam and Eve's relationship to God is not restored, then really the snake wins. He's like a, he's like a kamikaze pilot. He, he dies in the winning, but he still wins. He still accomplishes the destruction and the death that he intended. Right? And so there's an implication here that the divine human intimacy that was enjoyed before the fall will be restored. This is stuff that we've already alluded to a fair bit over the last uh, couple of weeks and prior to that when we were in our series in Genesis. Uh, 
throughout the closing months of 2017. But this is an additional thing that I haven't yet touched on. And this is, this is f- f- fascinating and clarifying in terms of the rest of the storyline of Scripture. And this is new. I haven't said this yet. <laughs> what God does here when Adam and Eve fall into sin is not merely promise a rescuer, Genesis 3.15, that's not the only gospel that's in this passage. We could look at uh, verse 21, God clothing Adam and Eve, and conjecture that that was probably symbolic of being clothed in Christ's righteousness. But that's not an open and shut case. I think that probably was intended by God to be a foreshadowing. But there's something else here, some more gospel here in this section. In this, at this juncture of human history, God institutes the sacrificial system. At this juncture in history, God introduces substitutionary animal sacrifices. At this juncture in history. Robert Candlish, who was a Scottish minister, says this section's connection with the whole following history in which the practice of animal sacrifices is manifestly taken for granted as having the sanction of God suggests irresistibly the idea that the divine origin of the right is here implied. In plain English, what that means is that when we read throughout the rest of Genesis, it's assumed that the right way to approach God is through animal sacrifices. Before, before the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. Just as the moral law did not begin with Moses, but was reiterated and codified in the Mosaic Covenant, so the sacrificial system did not begin with Moses, though it was reiterated and codified and in fact developed more fully in the Mosaic Covenant. The basic idea of substitutionary animal sacrifices begins here, right in this section. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. How did he know how to do that? Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now hold that thought. I know it doesn't say about substitutionary sacrifices. I realize that. Turn to 12, uh, or sorry, 12.8 mentions uh, the altar, another altar in chapter 12 and verse 8. Turn now to 13 verse 4. Uh, Abram travels to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord or the name of Yahweh. Verse chapter 13 and verse 18. Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, go to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 7. The question is, what was he doing at those altars? Those altars don't mention burnt offerings. But go to chapter 22 and verse 7. This is the story where God says to sacrifice Isaac. And so Abraham and Isaac are making their way up the mountain where Abraham Abraham knows that he's supposed to sacrifice Isaac. Okay? And this is what his son, Isaac, says. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, this is Genesis 22, 7, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So what was Abram doing at these altars? 
offering up burnt offerings. Even his son knew that. Even his son put two and two together. He knew what they were going to do when they were going to worship the Lord. He knew the nature of what was to be done when they went up to the altar to worship the Lord. He knew that. And so we can read back into then when it says that Abram built an altar there. It doesn't say he built an altar where he would sacrifice animals. But we we recognize that that was the normal standard practice for Abraham. Look at chapter 26 and verse 25. This is Isaac now. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord, or the name of Yahweh, and pitched his tent there. Now Jacob, Genesis 33 and verse 20. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Chapter 35, verse 1, verse 3, verse 7. And in fact, in chapter 35 and verse 1, God instructs Jacob to make an altar. And even look at Moses in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 15. Now remember, this is before Moses goes up the mountain to receive the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. Exodus chapter 17 and verse 15. Moses built an altar there and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. What you also see is back in the account of the Exodus, Moses says that they need to take their flocks and their herds into the wilderness to worship the Lord. I'm sorry, I forgot to write down this reference. Give me a moment that I might scan it. Moses said in chapter 10, Exodus chapter 10 and verse 9, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. I'm not sure if that's the verse I was looking for. Anyway, you get the point. What I'm trying, what I'm trying to show you is that right from this section of Scripture, it's assumed that the right way to worship that the right way to approach the Lord is through a substitutionary animal sacrifice. And so that will, um, that explains, uh, pardon me, sorry, when I paused there, I lost my train of thought. The presence of all these examples of animal sacrifices prior to the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant in Scripture, means either that from the fall, man began to worship God as man saw fit, and God was pleased with it because it was sincere. Man man decided, well, we should, I guess we should offer up animal sacrifices, and, and Yahweh was pleased with it and thought, that's a reasonable idea. Right? Or, or it means that God had revealed already by that time how man is to worship Him. And we know from the rest of Scripture that it has to be the latter and not the former. We see in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. They, they tried to worship the Lord in a way that the Lord had not prescribed. The Lord had not explicitly forbidden it, but it was a way that he had not prescribed. And so what does God do? He strikes them dead. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, they're moving the Ark of the Covenant, which nobody is allowed to touch. And Uzzah puts out his hand to steady the Ark when the the cattle stumble. What does God do? He strikes him dead. 
we see in, throughout the rest of Scripture that God is concerned about the way in which He is worshipped. God is not merely concerned that He is worshipped. He is concerned with how He is worshipped. Those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. Not just in spirit, like, yeah, we got the right attitude. But in truth, according to the prescription of God's Word. So what we see from the presence of all these altars in the biblical narrative prior to the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant, the presence of all these animal sacrifices prior to the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant, what we must necessarily infer is that God had revealed that this is the right way to worship Him. Which then makes sense of the whole Cain and Abel narrative which comes to us in chapter 4. God accepts Abel's worship, but not Cain's. There are two reasons for this. One is, Hebrews 11 verse 4 tells us explicitly, Abel offered it by faith. God is not pleased with mere outward performance of the right rituals. That we need to join faith with our worship. Not only in truth, but also in spirit. Right? Not only in spirit, but also in truth. But not only in truth, but also in spirit. That we have to join faith with our worship. We worship the right ways, but we also worship with the right attitude. That is, by faith. And so, Hebrews 11 tells us explicitly that um, uh, Cain, or pardon me, that Abel offered up an acceptable sacrifice to God because he offered it up by faith. But the second thing we, we may infer, and we're on good, solid ground here, um, based on the line of argumentation I just led you through. We're on good, solid ground here to infer that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's because Abel brought animals to die as substitutionary sacrifices and Cain brought the fruit of the ground. That's not the way that God had prescribed to be worshipped. And so that helps us make sense of what's going on here with Cain and with Abel. People have, people have said that... Um, you know, Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. He, bought, he brought the best. But Cain brought the worst, like the old, the old shriveled peppers and, you know, these old moldy tomatoes. And, you know, it doesn't, but this text does not say that. The text does not say that. There's, no, there's nothing here to preclude the possibility that Cain brought the best fruit of the land. There's nothing here in the text to preclude that possibility. So that's barking up the wrong tree. Uh, what, you, what you often hear is, well, it has nothing to do with what the, the nature of the sacrifice, but it was the fact that it was by faith. And as I've already said, that is part of it. But it's also very, very clear that at this juncture of um, uh, biblical history, that God had got instituted that uh, animals should die. If Abel, if Abel brought animals to God and sacrificed them in worship to God, and God accepted it, it was appropriate worship, which means it was prescribed worship. So God instituted, right from the fall of man, substitutionary sacrifice in order that man would be in right relationship to Him. Right? It's, and it's impossible. It's impossible that the Israelites, to whom, who would have been the first readers of Genesis. It's impossible that they would not make that connection. Right? Living in, living in the wilderness, Genesis was likely written sort of on the cusp of entering the promised land. So living in the wilderness, before they go into the promised land, they receive the book of Genesis from Moses' pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they read about Cain and Abel it's impossible that they would not make that connection with the tabernacle system and so on and so forth. So God immediately on the fall of man instituted substitutionary sacrifices in order that man would be in right standing with God. Now, we know from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Bulls and goats can't save you. Bulls and goats couldn't save Moses. And bulls and goats couldn't save Abel. So what was the point of all these sacrifices throughout the Old Testament? Well, in the Mosaic Covenant, 
and before, all the way back to Abel. The purpose of all these sacrifices was instructive. That they were meant to teach us the seriousness of sin. That someone must die for this sin. That justice must be done. Retributive justice. Plain, old, retributive justice. You sinned, you must die. It also taught the nature of substitution. That God is pleased to relate to people who are trusting in a substitute. And that God is pleased to punish a substitute for our sin. It, taught, it gave us categories of thinking to be able to think like that. Right? It, in other words, all of these things were types and shadows foreshadowing an eventual substitute who would come and who would be punished, who would undergo the retributive justice that we were due for our sin, namely Christ Jesus. There would be eventually on the scene, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what all of these things were pointing to all the way back from Abel. Abel is the first recorded substitutionary, or he offers, pardon me, the first recorded substitutionary sacrifice in the Bible. And so all the way from Abel, all the way from Abel to Christ, the death of these bulls and goats and lambs and turtle doves and all of the things that are specified at various times and various places throughout the Old Testament, all of these things are pointing forward to a substitute who will come. So what this teaches us is that God immediately, immediately, not only dealt graciously with Adam and Eve by allowing them to live a little bit longer, biologically. God not only dealt graciously with them by expelling them from the garden in order that they might not be confirmed in a state of corruption. God not only dealt graciously with them by meeting their basic material, providing for their basic material necessities in clothing them. Not only did God promise a rescuer, but right from the beginning, God began instructing presumably Adam and Eve, as well as Cain and Abel, about the nature of that rescuer, about the nature of the rescue that he would accomplish. That what the striking of the heel might look like, that there would be a substitute for sinners who would one day die and who would bear the punishment. Now, of course, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel wouldn't have understood the fullness of that, but they would have understood at least at the basic level that God is willing to be gracious that God is willing to punish a substitute in my place. And that if I'm going to have standing with God here after the broken covenant of works, it must be by grace. It cannot be by my own law keeping. It has to be by grace. God's gracious provision of a substitute for me. That would have been real clear to Adam and Eve, to Cain and Abel. That at least at that level, that would have been real clear. And so by trusting in God's provision of a substitute, by believing God's promise that a rescuer would come and undo what had been done, who would crush the serpent's head, who would restore divine and human intimacy that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall, one who would come and bear uh, the sins of the world. Right? We, we read in Hebrews that um, under the Old Covenant that they could have deduced that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. But because they're offered over and over, people should have put two and two together. These are not effective. And they should have been led to expect another one who is coming. Eventually, we read in later Revelation, right, about, like, for instance, Isaiah 53, he shall bear our iniquities, so on and so forth, right? The Revelation is progressive, but right from the beginning, it would have been clear to Adam and Eve, God revealed to Adam and Eve that now 
after the fall, after the covenant of works has been broken, God revealed right away to Adam and Eve, to Cain and Abel, and began dealing with the human race in this way. If you are to relate to me, it will be on the basis of my grace toward you. If you are to relate rightly to me, it will be on the great basis of my grace toward you. That would have been crystal clear. God's provision, God's mercy, God's grace, God's promises. Right from the beginning, all of these things would have been clear to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And so you see right from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, a promise of the gospel. It's there in seed form. It's not, it's not as clear as it will get in the New Testament. It's not even as clear as it will get by the time Isaiah 53 is written or by the time that David starts penning psalms and talking about um, one whose hands and feet will be pierced and so on and so forth. It's not as clear as it will be later, but right from the beginning, God reveals to Adam and Eve and to Cain and Abel, if you are to relate rightly to me, it will be on the basis of my grace toward you. It will be on the basis of you believing my promises. It will be on the basis of you trusting in my provision of substitutes for you. Getting on board with my program of substitutionary sacrifice. It will be on the basis of me being merciful toward you and not on the basis of you earning. So right from the beginning, we have this promise of the gospel that gets clearer and clearer and clearer throughout the Old Testament until Christ Jesus comes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the rescuer who crushes the serpent's head, the one who restores the divine human intimacy that Adam and Eve lost before the fall, and the one who at the end of the book of Revelation reopens our access to the tree of life. Jesus comes and does it all. He fulfills all of these types and shadows, all of these promises that we see here in Genesis 3 and at the beginning of Genesis chapter 4. Therefore, in view of all this, the Bible is not an anthology of random stories. Nor is it two disjointed sections. That this is who God was back then and this is how He dealt with people back then and this is who God is now and this is how He deals with people now. The way you sometimes hear the Old Testament and the New Testament rent asunder like that. This is not the right way to read the Bible. This is a unified narrative of God's promises and their eventual fulfillment in Christ. The Bible is a unified narrative which begins by setting the scene, giving the context. There was a good garden. God put a man in it. He put him in a covenant of works. Man broke the covenant of works. God began to make promises. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we trace God's further promises. And into the New Testament, we read about God's fulfillment of those promises. So we see that this is one big unified narrative. It begins with types and shadows and moves toward correspondent reality in Christ. It starts with promises and moves toward fulfillment. The Bible's storyline is creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. There's a clear movement through Scripture that this is one big story. So what we see then is all the little stories, all the, um, you know, this king did this, and this king did that, and then this prophet went here and did this, and then this happened, and then, you know, Satan asked for permission to tempt Job and to make Job suffer, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then the walls of Jericho fell down. What we need to understand then is all of these things are threads in one big tapestry that God is weaving. That these are all individual notes in a grand symphony that God is playing. That these are not all random stories, but these are stories which illustrate the truths 
that relate to this big main story. In any story in Scripture, you find issues like fall, sin, redemption, restoration. How is God involved in judgment? How is God involved in salvation? Throughout all Scripture, you can find all of these themes present. And this is the way to understand the Bible. It's one big story. And so this is why Jesus could say in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, as we read earlier, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these testify of Me. The Scriptures, and implicitly in that context, the Old Testament Scriptures, are Scriptures that testify of Me. So we need to be looking for, responsibly, but we do need to be looking for Christ in all of Scripture. We do need to be reading each micro-narrative, all of the small little stories, as part of the macro-narrative, the big overarching story of Scripture. Creation, fall in Adam, uh, redemption in Christ, and consummation into eternity. We need to be seeing this big storyline. So, in simple terms, there's a pre-fall covenant of works and a broken covenant of works that continues to be the default mode of man's relationship to God after the fall. And after the fall, there's a promise of a covenant of grace. There's a promise of new terms of relationship. A new covenant. New terms of relationship. Promised throughout the Old Testament and established by Christ in the New Testament. Those who trust in the gracious new terms of relationship that God instituted after the fall. Those who depend upon the rescuer. Those who depend upon the lamb. Those are the people who are in right relationship to God. Those who recognize that after the fall, if we're going to be rightly related to God, we've got to be rightly related to God by grace. Those are the ones who are indeed rightly related to God. But those who trust in their works remain fallen in Adam and under the failed covenant of works. And so we just, I thought it would be helpful to stop and pause here and just note this transition that happens and give us categories for thinking now as we're going to begin to trace the way that God deals with various people and eventually various families and various nations throughout the rest of Scripture. It's important to note this transition that God institutes, He gives a promise of a Redeemer and He institutes this substitutionary sacrificial system right from the beginning, giving us categories to expect and look for a Messiah who will come and fulfill all of these types and these shadows.